All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here, and I have a interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now again that's b-a-d-l-a-n-d-s-f-o-o-d.com slash dark topic to check it out badlandsfood.com can we talk something else can, can we talk about something else <laughs> Hello, out there. There's an eerie sense while walking or driving or riding a bike out on a country road that you're about to begin floating away, like gravity could unlock at any moment, shutting the illusion of a blue sky off, sucking life as we know it out into the blackness of space, towards a sun now indifferent as a bloodshot eye on a half-awake hobo, incinerating each of us into dust like ants under a sadistic child's magnifying glass. If you lay off the booze and the speed, it's not too bad. Wide open spaces, they're beautiful. Really. Out there on the country back roads, just majestic, especially when the corn is high. Though even the most sober mind must admit that dirt roads surrounded by walls of corn can become uncomfortable as the sun dips to spill shadows like black paint upon them, the corn crowding around as if to say hello or perhaps goodbye. A rustling breeze brings ghosts that rush in from all angles when you're out in the corn, that coming in through a Maze maze these ghosts are, kicking up dust as they burst from the rotting walls onto the dirt road you might be riding your little bike on. And though the corn is all ears, your screams will fall deaf on them. How do you like that? The occasional ramshackle house with the typically dilapidated barn exists on the back roads, tucked behind a sparse mode of trees to provide a windbreak. What the hell are those people doing out there? behind the corn. It feels like we should be checking in on them, but we don't because there's a good chance those no trespassing and get the fuck off my lawn signs mean business. Like 
mind your own business. So we do. Until a girl or two goes missing. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. When the corn is high. Wednesday, July 4th, 1990. A 26-year-old woman, her name was Robin, and she's working up a sweat, getting some early morning exercise in before the Independence Day festivities, pedaling her bike along dusty Obie Road in White House, Ohio, through a large cornfield, when she hears the low rumble of an engine in the distance. The corn is high and she is blind to everything but dirt road, walls of corn, and bright blue sky. When a red flatbed truck comes screaming around the curve ahead, dust following like a wave of filth, and passes Robin, who slows her pedaling to navigate the obnoxious cloud of dirt, she's forced to enter. When she comes out on the other side, the day has taken on a darkness. The man in the truck had seemed to appraise her as he'd passed. Through the rear view, he'd been a dog at a butcher shop window. And Robin had felt that hungry gaze, a gaze that propels her forward to escape its touch on her backside, a gaze that soon returns, along with the roar of engine. And that's just great. He's coming back. And what a relaxing early morning bike ride this has turned out to be for Robin. She veers her bicycle over and is consoled by the corn that rubs her shoulder and maybe knows what's coming. It likely has seen this man in the red truck perform before he's coming the engine revs and she doesn't look back she is almost relieved to hear it's not slowing behind her and prepares to be passed and shrouded in dust once again but then robin is flying having been hit from behind and now she's tumbling into the corn that catches her and works to cover her from the man who has parked exited the big red truck and now approaches with a screwdriver and a pair of handcuffs asking, hey, are you all right? As he reaches into the shade through shivering stalks to grab Robin by the arm. And as she's responding, telling the large man with the sweat-stained shirt and oil-slick skin that, yeah, she thinks she's okay, Robin realizes she's being dragged towards the idling truck. And as she attempts to struggle free, the man begins hitting her over the head and stabbing her in the leg with a screwdriver. He's telling her to shut up and he's threatening to kill her if she doesn't. A word from the then 26-year-old woman here on this moment. Quote, I was screaming in the cornfield at the top of my lungs. A blood-curdling scream. A scream I didn't know I had in me. End quote. She's a handful. And as the man is fighting to get the cuffs slapped on while simultaneously shoving the girl into his truck, a man on a motorcycle appears like a knight in shining leather. And the attack freezes victim and perpetrator equally stunned by the development which Robin soon takes advantage of, breaking loose, running to the motorcycle which is slowed to a halt about 20 feet away, its jockey a little hesitant to come too close to the strange scene. What a beautiful day for a rip, he'd been thinking. And that's a dying thought, as the bloody girl in torn clothing dashes madly towards him through the corn, jumps on the back of the motorcycle screaming the word go, just as loud as she'd just been screaming the word stop, and now... The large man with the sweat-stained shirt and oil-slick skin is the one left in the dust. Bloody screwdriver and handcuffs squeezed and 
meaty fists. His name is James Dean Worley. He is a self-proclaimed handyman, a small engine repair mechanic, and a lawn care specialist who lives with his mother in a house on a three-acre property hidden behind the corn and the trees. In other words, he's a big galoot who tinkers with lawnmowers and cuts grass for beer money. And when he's drinking, he's thinking about kidnapping women to keep his sex slaves in his mom's barn. And it's your typical Texas chainsaw type that we all assume is out there in the brush sharpening weapons and collecting ammunition for the end times when the morbidly obese will reclaim the earth and bring smoke and cigarettes back to the inside of restaurants and hospitals. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Investigators track Worley down. His big red truck's license plate number had been captured by the mind of his would-be sex slave. The 31-year-old is arrested in front of his mother and his beloved lawn care equipment. The crime is quite heinous, considering what likely would have become of Robin had she not been rescued and fought the man off. But the sentence for all this is light. In November of 1990, Worley receives four to ten years for the terrifying attack. He claims he had been trying to keep the girl from fleeing the scene of an accident. An accident she'd caused by driving her bike in front of his truck as he passed. The dangerous offender will serve three years of his sentence and is back for Christmas in 93 with his dear mother. Chewing down a dry turkey dinner, gazing through a filthy farmhouse window, plotting what he will accomplish with the ratchet set Santa brought when the corn is high once again. And I'm just trying to tell you that Worley is an overgrown, entitled child with a compacted IQ in the region of self-gratification and preservation. In other words, he's dumb as shit, unless his mind is focused on his own wants and needs. And because of this stubborn, stupid, childlike aspect to James Dean Worley, Will only ever know of the girls he was caught stealing. But there were more. Maybe many more. And before we get to the crime that made James Dean Worley infamous, I'd like to take a side road to explore an unsolved case that could be his handiwork. September 8th, 1996. Worley, then 37 years old, is addicted to cocaine and prostitutes, neither of which can be found in the fields of Fulton County, unless somebody decides to pull in off the highway to discard a garbage bag of the stuff which does happen on occasion. A 24-year-old sex worker known as Sissy has her hard hat on, and she is advertising on the dimly lit corners of North Toledo back in this fall of 96 when she is picked up by the large pockmarked face man she knows as James Dean, a regular dance partner of prostitutes on the underbelly of downtown Toledo. The area's annual fall festival has degraded into drunken buffoonery. And the streets, decorated orange and yellow, are touched up with vomit and piss as the night ushers in the undesirables and scares away family folk. James Dean Worley is one of these undesirables. He loves it out here. And on this night, he has everything he needs. A pocket full of blow and a party in the passenger seat. And who knows what kind of horrendous shit he managed to say or communicate with his body language that caused Sissy to... Demand he stop by her mother's house first. She claims she needs something. And she does. Sissy needs to tell her mother the license plate number of the car she's in. A blue 95 Chevy Beretta. ARB. 
I-982 is the number. Write it down for me, Ma. This guy I'm with is creeping me out. And then she's gone. Forever. The 24-year-old leaves behind three kids and a mother certain that she has the information needed to figure this out. Sissy and her occupation is known to police, so it's not like a search party is scouring the streets for her. But when the license plate is eventually looked into, it's traced to a man recently released from prison following a vicious kidnapping attempt in a cornfield. And James Dean Worley is questioned, and the blue Chevy is searched with a flashlight and an eyeball, but nothing concrete points to Worley having committed a crime, so the potentially active serial killer is let go. The cops don't like it, though. It's not like they're bumbling this. They know there's a problem here, and they follow up with a visit to Worley's mother's house in the trees behind the corn in 2000. And this time, James Worley is taken away in cuffs. The investigators notice pot plants on the property, and because they believe Worley is a menace to society, they make sure the book is thrown at him. Two more years in prison is the result, which almost squares the early release for his attack in 1990. We have no idea what Worley got up to as a free man other than creating a kind of sex dungeon in his mother's barn hidden by a wall of hay bales, manacles on the wall, chains, boxes with sex paraphernalia, one holding a clutch of woman's panties, a pair was covered in an unknown person's blood. There was a freezer lined with carpet, we do know that. We also know that Worley told a court-mandated counselor that he had learned from his abductions and would bury the next girl he abducted. Abductions. The plural in his speech there is a problem. It is a little concerning, especially since the next girl that we know of him abducting did indeed end up underground, and it's tough to believe she was the first. July 19th. 2016, Fulton County, Ohio. In close proximity to the Worley property and a waiting sex dungeon, a sweet, innocent 20-year-old girl is riding her bike through the towering corn along a dirt road when she disappears. It is 6.45 p.m. We know this because Sierra Joglin had been in close contact via text with her boyfriend, Josh. The two had been inseparable since the age of 10 and had been dating since middle school. Sierra and Josh had been together moments before her vanishing, in fact, and there's a photo Josh took of Sierra riding her bike alongside his motorcycle as he escorted her most of the way down a long country road before saying goodbye for now and motoring back home, sending her into the corn. The next photo taken of the girl will be by a homicide investigator, and the image, though I've only seen it in my imagination, is the stuff of nightmares. It's immediately apparent to Josh and to the Joglins that something isn't right when Sierra fails to return home. The authorities are alerted and they drive out to the cornfield where the girl was last known to be riding her bike through. During a slow search of the dirt road, they spot a purple bike a couple rows in behind a broken wall of corn. When they get out of the patrol car to investigate further, they discover a pair of men's sunglasses, a box of fuses, a screwdriver, and a bunch of motorcycle tracks. Once they confirm Sierra's bike was purple, the scene is taped off and word quickly gets out that a young woman is missing and quite likely has been abducted. Fulton County freaks out. Did someone come off the highway and steal the girl? 
Or was it a local? Was it the boyfriend? It's gotta be the boyfriend. He had a motorcycle and they found motorcycle tracks down there, I heard tell. The rumor mill is fitted with a helicopter blade and a squall of speculation soaks the small Ohio county until real answers dry it all up. A large motorcycle helmet fit for a Neanderthal with blood on it is brought in to police. This from a motorist who had found it on the dirt road near the crime scene not long before the bike was discovered in the corn. Another local called in saying they'd seen a passenger van driving at high speeds in that area around 7 p.m. It had been traveling so erratically that the witness had made the effort to take down the license plate as it passed. When the plate is checked, it is found to be that of now 57-year-old James Dean Worley, a local celebrity when it comes to being super fucking weird who lives in the back country with his mother. He's known to have once attempted to kidnap a 26-year-old woman on a bike out in these parts almost exactly 26 years previous, which is a little strange, but insignificant, until you split 26 by the two known victims and reveal the 13, which is significant, and that it's a sure sign that I suffer from mental illness. Anyways, Worley is questioned at his mother's farmhouse, which is located only two miles from the crime scene. Worley quickly shares that he had been riding his motorcycle in the area of the girl's disappearance, and that he'd broken down and pushed his bike into the corn to work on it. He left his sunglasses and some tools there. Had they found those? Oh, wait, there was a bike in there, too. That might have my prints on it, now that I think about it. Oh, and I, and I lost my helmet. And here's a strange quote from James Dean. Quote, I didn't steal anything or kill anyone. What else didn't you do? When investigators obtain a search warrant two days after Sierra's disappearance, they quickly confirm that they're onto something with James Worley. In his truck, they find zip ties, a ski mask, two sets of handcuffs, rope, tape, and recording equipment. The whole area around the farmhouse and barn appears to be under surveillance by Worley, who's turned the property into his own little prison camp of sorts since his mother had been put into nursing care. Oh, you don't need to go on the barn, fellas. Yeah, okay, James, we'll skip that area. Likely nothing to see in an old creepy barn with cameras pointed at it on a convicted abductor's out-of-the-way acreage behind the trees overlooking a cornfield where his bloody motorcycle helmet, sunglasses, and screwdriver were found next to the bike of a missing 20-year-old university student. They enter the barn, and they find the freezer lined with carpet spotted with blood. They discover an area behind bales of hay that has chains and hooks and manacles, like I mentioned. They find the tickle trunk full of gross sex shit and bloody panties that may be trophies from unknown victims. Worley's motorcycle has blood on it, and this looks to be a slam dunk, except for the main thing that's missing from the barn, Sierra Joglin. On an inflatable mattress and some duct tape, they later will discover some of Sierra and her DNA but her body won't be discovered until the following day. While James Dean Worley is sitting in a cell, slumped, silent, and pouting like a 12-year-old whose slingshot was just taken away, Sierra's body is discovered in a field a few miles from where she'd been abducted. From where I believe she had been ambushed by Worley pretending to have motorcycle trouble, where he'd smashed her over the head with his helmet, dragged her and her bike into the cornfield, then sped off to get a vehicle to haul her back to the barn. It's a ravenous assault and abduction, sloppy and stupid and useless as Worley himself. 
Sierra had been buried in an obvious and shallow grave, and the state of her corpse tells a pitiful story. Her hands are handcuffed behind her back, and duct tape attaches the cuffs to rope around her ankles. She's been hogtied. Also, she is fitted with an adult diaper. And there's something about that that gets to me bad. I mean, at first I thought it was the time I spent working with adults with disabilities, something terrible there in the mishmash of my memories and my imagination on this detail. But then I stopped and realized, hey, he puts this perfectly healthy 20-year-old girl, student, daughter, girlfriend, friend, in an adult diaper and had her bound up in his barn doing God knows what to her. And maybe that's what's bothering me. You know, just that. Because it's pretty damn bothersome. But a fucking diaper. God damn it, man. The cause of death is in her mouth. An oversized plastic ball gag that had choked her to death. It had been shoved in her mouth so forcefully that one of the girl's teeth were broken. Another detail not so good to know if you planned on smiling much today. It's grim. It appears that Worley had her all prepped for whatever his sick fantasies were and Sierra had asphyxiated on the ridiculous sex toy while he was impotently covering his tracks. Data from Worley's cell phone revealed that he had spent hours in the area where the abduction had taken place. Perhaps he was looking for his helmet that had Sierra's blood and his handprint on it, like Wilson from Castaway, a helmet that he used to bring Sierra down. He was ironically concerned would bring him down. Though there was an incredible amount of other evidence he overlooked in his panic. I should add here that there was no clear sign Sierra had been sexually assaulted before her death. And that feels too simple to call it a death. It's a clumsy, accidental murder performed by this ninny running around the farm like dinner's burning and guests are arriving. I'm a fucking loser. In the search history of his computer, it was found Worley had been surfing porn in the hours leading up to the attack. Here are some key words he'd searched. Quote, rape, stranded, helpless, hogtied teen, end quote. Worley's first known victim, Robin Gardner, came forward to speak after learning of Sierra's fate at the hands of Robin's same attacker back in 1990. The similarities in the attacks are too obvious to overlook. A young woman alone on a bike in an open rural area, attacked once shrouded by the high corn. From Robin Gardner here, now in her early 50s, quote, I can't walk in the woods alone. I can't hike, bird watch. I get very afraid if people aren't around to help me if I'm in need. It's like this guy strikes when the corn is high. Sierra's Law was created in December of 2018. This is a statute that provides a searchable database for felons living in the state of Ohio who are convicted of specific violent offenses. And it would have been nice to have had on that day that Sierra was riding her bike through the high corn. She would have known, possibly, that there was a convicted abductor of girls just like her in a situation just like she was in, uh, living a couple of miles away when she parted ways with her boyfriend and rode down a path that would end up ending in her horrific death at the hands of an offender like James Dean Worley. In court, 
Worley's defense tried to point to the fact that a witness had seen a man crouched in the corn wearing red shorts that night. And since Worley didn't have red shorts, maybe it was this weird guy who did all this shit? Jesus, what an odd night on the back roads of Fulton County, Ohio this was. Imagine going for a jog in your little red shorts and being overcome with the urge to take a shit so you squat in the corn near where a heinous crime is occurring, unbeknownst to you. And you're just like squatting there, relieving yourself. And now you're a part of a story too embarrassing to admit to. Shout out to Red Shorts Guy. You really threw a wrench into this for a while. Dropping that deuce. Um, and who's to say he was taking a shit? Who's to say he was even there? I just find that creepy, you know? That somebody drove through that area when this was going on. Or just after it happened. Maybe while it was happening. Before it happened. I don't know. But there would be a guy in red shorts squatting in the corn. On the, right in that same strip. Dropping that deuce. And does it mean that possibly he had someone along with him? I don't think that Worley would keep that a secret. He seems like a fucking rat. I think Red Shorts guy was just a dude on a jog taking a dump. And that is uh, embarrassing. Like his shorts, I'm sure his face is red. I don't blame him for not coming forward. Hey, uh, yeah, that was me. Actually, I was taking a shit in the corn. Um... I could show you where I took the shit if you like. I, I didn't have anything to do with this, though. I was just jogging, and I drank a greens drink before I headed out, and, and I've learned my lesson. I'm, I'm really sorry. James Dean Worley was found guilty of kidnapping and murder, and a dozen other bumbling crimes surrounded the abduction, torture, and murder of Sierra Joglin. The judge had this to say after the death penalty was sought after, quote, if I thought there was a snowball's chance in hell that you were innocent, you'd be looking at a life sentence, partner. End quote. He didn't say partner. I just uh, summoned the ghost of that judge in the Ted Bundy trial. Remember when he was being all jovial with Ted Bundy when he sent him away? He said, hey, partner, you'd make a hell of a law attorney if you had gone down a different road. Would have loved to have had you underneath my wing. But partner, you went and killed 5,000 women. And that's not getting the cards no more, partner. But you know what? I wish you well. Take her easy, Ted. Can I shake your hand? <laughs> what the fuck was that all about? If you ever seen the Ted Bundy uh, trial at the end, the, the judge is like fanboying over Bundy. Loves the guy. Wishes he was his son-in-law. And that's not the type of judge we got here. This judge sees right through it all. If you take one look at James Dean Worley, there is an interview done by WTOL11 that I have in the source notes here. Um, he reached out to one of the reporters and she did a interview with him. You can tell everything you need to tell from this guy. He's a narcissist, very childlike. She says, she says as much. Um, that's her impression of him. After the interview she has with him on death row, he's trying to uh, say that he's set up and all that. She's not having it. It's a great little interview in, uh, in the show notes here. You should check it out. Like the judge said, there was not a snowball's chance in hell that he was innocent. He clearly was the one that did this, and Worley had no remorse as he continues to this day to play the victim, claiming, like I just said, to be set up. And now he is scheduled to die. Save the date. That will be May 20th, 2025, early spring, when the corn will be low, but my hopes, at least, will be high. And that will do it. Thank you so much for listening once again. Um, what a case that was. 
I think I said everything I need to say. I mean, I really did get hung up there on the diaper. And the ball gag. Um, certainly there's been more horrific murders, I mean. But those two details, just fuck, man. You're just riding along on your bike. Just said good- goodbye to your boyfriend. You'll see him later. You're headed home to your loving family. You get your whole life ahead of you. And this fucking bastard jumps out of the corn and smashes you over the head with his bike helmet. Motorcycle bike helmet. Um, and all that shit happens to her. Kind of makes you think, eh? No, it doesn't. Fuck, what's wrong with me? Um, oh, does it make you think? What does it make you think, Jack? Well, it makes me think that, I mean, uh, horrible shit can happen anywhere, anytime. And that's why I do the podcast. Stay paranoid. Some shoutouts here from the good people over on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support over there. PMC. Brandy. Astrid Steinhilbiller. Is that your real name, Astrid? Wow, what a name. Blew it for sure. Reiki Liu. I think I've said your name before. Reiki, thanks for coming back. I think I screwed it up big time last time as well. How could you not screw this name up? Reiki Liu. Sorry, Reiki. Monique. Lemarino is making a piece of pie for me. I don't know. Gina Akawi. Uh, fuck that up for sure. Sorry, Gina. Mibiskamugaboo. Whoa, you did this on purpose, Mibiskamugaboo. M-B-I-S-M-K-B-U. What am I missing there? Mibis. Is there some hidden meaning in that name? Mibis. Bis. Maybe you're from uh, Africa. Uh, the middle somewhere. I'm not sure. Hallie. Hallie. Thank you, Hallie. Lori Kukendall. Oh, my God, Lori. I think I screwed your last name up and you told me how to pronounce it. Um, Lori does some uh, merch for Dark Topic. It's called Dark Merch Luna on Facebook. If you search Dark Merch Luna, she's got some great, uh, interesting, odd, uh, exciting uh, merch merch that she creates for Dark Topic. And uh, go check that out. Dark Merch Luna. like lighters and lamps and just a, a bunch of kooky shit that really fits the brand, I feel. Thanks, Lori, for all your uh, your work there. Matt Kine. Very kind of you, uh, Matt Kine. Thanks, Matty. Leslie Phipps. Thank you so much, Leslie Phipps. I got nothing fucking stupid to say about your name, I guess. Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer, for just making it easy on me. Thanks, Jennifer. And Wednesday. Oh, my God. It is Wednesday today. It's like it was meant to be Wednesday. Thank you so much for your high-level support. Over on Patreon, and a special shout-out to Isabel with a Y. Why did I write that down? Oh, Isabel, she was nice to me. She said something nice to me this morning, and it really picked up my day. So thank you, Isabel, uh, with a Y, if that is how you pronounce your name. Sorry if it isn't. Anyways, um, I'll be back soon with another dark topic. If you want more content, head over to Patreon. That is, uh, what is it, www.patreon dot com slash dark topic over there you can get a dark topic gallows that i do with kent chungus and I, i've started doing it with my good buddy jay from oklahoma you might uh, recall from the uh waking up with jack luna episode truck driver jay from oklahoma there um and we have a lot of fun on those gallows episodes what else do i got at the 13 dollar tier we have the monthly monster where i cover a serial killer Each month at 13, there's something else where we talk about something else finally. (laughs) 
And, um, oh, I've started to do Jack Luna's Dark Fiction. I've had a, some requests. I'm not going to say a lot. I've had a few requests for some of my fiction. And I do write some fiction on the side for kicks. So I've started to uh, record it. And that will be available at all levels of Patreon monthly for now, going forward. So head on over there to check that out. With my fiction, it is going to be loosely based on true events. So the one I'm working on right now, for example, is, uh, you know, the, the Golden State Killer, the original Night Stalker. I've never covered that case. <laughs> my approach to it with the fiction has been... You got this guy. You remember how he was all senile and they were bringing him into the courtroom in a wheelchair and he was acting like he couldn't fucking think or speak or anything, like he was completely out of it, suffering from dementia when he'd just been in his backyard yelling at a dog and riding a motorcycle the day before. <laughs> he, uh, he, That part of it really intrigues me. And through my fiction, I've kind of started to cover that in uh, trying to be in the mind of Joseph D'Angelo. So um, in the future, you'll have... You'll you'll be able to tell that it maybe has something to do with an actual crime, but um, I'm taking a fictitious angle. Good job. I, I'm I'm really good with words. I'm I'm a great writer, and uh, I know how I know that was super clear because of uh, those skills that I have. So until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, stay paranoid. I think that's it, and I hope to uh, I will be talking at you real soon. I'm working. I'm working. I'm here. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Take care now. Still sober, too, so fucking super weird being sober. Makes you loopy. I've been I've been taking these uh, nicotine mints, and man, there is too much nicotine in those mints. And the, they're Nicorette mints, not, not sponsored. And I took one before I recorded this, and I think it made me behave like I was on speed. Um, even more, more uh, manic than, than normal. So I'll try to hop on to the next episode when I'm super depressed to uh, to keep things bipolar. Okay, but take care now. Did I say goodbye? <laughs> <laughs>